And let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us again together this evening. We pray that you would speak to us now. We pray that your word would be effectual in our lives. We pray that we'd be transformed by it, sanctified by it, renewed by it, comforted by it, corrected by it. Whatever you've set out for it to accomplish this evening, Father. We pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of our beautiful, glorious, and resurrected Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated and turn in your Bibles to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. In the bulletin, uh, the title says, The Humiliation and Exaltation of Jesus. I told uh, or asked Evan, Let's, I'd like to change that after having more time to reflect on this and think about it, to The Mindset of Our Lord will be the title, and that will, I'm telling you that only because it will make a difference in the outline. Um, and then also, I want to look at verses 1 through 11 rather than just 5 through 11. And before we read the passage and move on, I just want to express my gratefulness to both Dr. Sinclair Ferguson and Dr. Hywell Jones, who have both so significantly influenced my understanding, appreciation, and adoration of this passage and the Savior about whom it speaks. I will quote from them a few times, but their influence in helping me engage this passage is seasoned throughout. And so I want to honor these brothers. And in particular, it often gets easy. One of the things that Dr. Ferguson was talking about is it gets easy to talk about this account as, as if it's uh, looking at it from observers rather than participants. And we really want to think about this passage as, the, as it looking at it from the perspective of the, the son and the perspective of the father in particular. The first point will be the mindset of the son the second point will be the mindset of the father, and the third point will be the mindset of the Christian. But so often we think about it in terms of others observing these things, whether it's wise men or angels or apostles or Mary. But here we want to think about it. What was the father thinking and what was the son thinking? What was their mindset uh, throughout the humiliation and exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus? And so that's what we'd like to look at this evening. Sinclair Fergus notes that the passage starts with Christ in glory and it ends with him being glorified in terms of that humiliation and exaltation. He was in glory and he came down, took on the form of a human. He suffered and died. Uh, he was crucified, dead and buried. And then he ascended into heaven and was glorified. He was uh, glorified. He started there and ends there. But what happens in between is significant for our life and for our salvation. And we often think about it in that way, but we want to think about it from Jesus' perspective and from the Father's perspective this evening. And let's hear now the word of God, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And so this evening, let's think about three different mindsets. The mindset of the Son, the mindset of the Father, and the mindset of the Christian. First, the mindset of the Son. Verses 6 through 8 reveal to us really the mindset of Jesus. And we'll note three aspects to it as we go along. His action, his intention, and what was he thinking about. And the first one, it says, Though in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. The first thing that we know just about Jesus, what was the son thinking? Is that though he was in the form of God, in other words, though he is the exact same nature as God, he has the exact same qualities, he is God, he didn't count that equality as a thing to be grasped. Hebrews 1, 3-4 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his, the word of his power. So when we hear that though in the form of God, he didn't count equality a thing to be grasped, the first thing that we want to recognize is that he's saying that he is God. He is God, he was God, and he always will be God. But Jesus didn't count that equality with God something to be grasped or to be hung onto. It gives us a little glimpse of his mindset. Highwell Jones said that Christ didn't think in a self-centered way. Jesus wasn't me first or me only as our Savior and as the Son. He was concerned with and acted for others. He would not use his equality. He would not use his position. He would not use his sonship merely for his own advantage, but for others. In other words, Jesus didn't jealously guard his rights as son, his rights as God, but willingly came to condemned criminals, to those who hated them, to serve them and to love them and to save them. Sinclair Fergus said it quite simply. He didn't say, I will never allow myself to experience anything except that which is appropriate to me as God the Son. He is God. He is the exact imprint of the Father. He is in the form of God, and he didn't count that equality something to be grasped. He allowed himself to experience many things that really are shameful in many ways to, to, to visit upon God, but he willingly subjected themselves to it. That would be really difficult for us, a massive temptation, wouldn't it, to have all that kind of power, all that kind of influence, all that kind of luxury, if you will, and then to give it up to go and to serve others. Think about Jesus, even as he was in his battle with Satan, when he could have done everything that Satan suggested. He was hungry, and Satan said, well, you could turn these stones into bread, which indeed he could have. He was God. He could have leapt from the temple, as Satan said, and known that angels would take guard over him or even take care of himself. And he already was the ruler of all the kingdoms of the world, and Satan's tempting him, saying, hey, do these things. We see here that he had the power and the authority and the ability to do all of them, but he didn't grasp onto them and just do them because he could. He didn't abuse his power in any way. Whereas Satan constantly abused his power, Jesus didn't. 
He didn't always do the things that he could do. At any point, if you think about Jesus' life, it would have been real easy to pull the deity card and to say, I'm out of here. I don't want to deal with this anymore. This is just ridiculous or too much. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was denied. He was beaten. He was crucified. At any point, as God, he could have stopped those things. But he didn't grasp onto that equality, the power and the privileges that he had as something that he did. The best way that I, I knew how to think about this and how, how can I relate this to our, to our own life is to hear about sometimes when you hear about people doing experiments when they go and live with homeless people. And so they're going to go and try to experience that for, for a while. And so they go and they may live there for a week or for a month or several months. But it's not the same, is it? Because at any time they know, I can get out of here. I can go back home and get a hot shower. I can go home and get a meal. I can go home and do these things. They have the power and the ability to get out of there at some point. And it's difficult to imagine, but Jesus had the power and the ability and the prerogatives to do any of those things, but he came. He didn't account the quality and the power, something to be grasped, but he laid it down for us. And so contrast that with Adam. Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, but wasn't God. And he grasped onto, he went and took a hold of something that wasn't his, thinking that he would be made like God because Satan has deceived him. And so he sought to grasp something that wasn't him based on a lie, based on pride, based on a lack of fidelity to the Lord. He took out and grasped something and he plunged all of humanity into sin. And Jesus is God. He has every right. He has every privilege. He has all of these things. And he doesn't count that equality something to be grasped. And he chooses to be obedient. Where Adam failed, where Adam tanked, where Adam caved, Jesus said, I am going to go and I am going to perfectly obey in those situations. Jesus, as we want to understand it, is the son understood his position as one of giving rather than one of getting. The second thing that we read in the text is that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this phrase, of course, there's been a lot of ink spilled about it. What does it mean that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant? The NIV translated, he made himself nothing. So whichever way you translate it, it, the main point I want to draw is that Jesus is doing this. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. This is his mindset. What is the Savior thinking He emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant born in the likeness of sinful man. I think Hywell Jones said it the best. Is that so many times he said at the outset, it should be said that the beguiling question of of what did he empty himself should not be asked if only because the passage does not provide an answer to that question. Instead, we should ask what did it mean for him to empty himself? What it meant for him was to take the form of a servant, to be born in the likeness of man. In other words, Hywell Jones says he emptied himself not by getting rid of something, but by adding something, by adding humanity. Here was the one who was eternally God, who has always lived in glory, who's always been in perfect harmony with the Father, who's never known any limits, who's never known any trouble or suffering himself. And he's going to add to himself human flesh, 
the limits of all of that, the suffering of all of that. Everything that that means, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, by becoming born in the likeness of man. He didn't empty himself of his power. He didn't empty himself of his glory. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He would have ceased to be God. He was, it was and always is God, but he added something. He took on human flesh. It's amazing to think about. He who was rich became poor. He who was free enslaved himself. He who was infinite took on limits. He subjected himself to limitations. He was independent, made himself dependent. He who deserves eternal, unbroken, wholehearted service came and served. That's the mindset of the Savior. That's what Jesus was thinking about. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, to think about what it means to be, he emptied himself, is to think that he's empty-handed. In the sense of, if you think of Jesus in glory, he has everything. Everything is his. But when he takes on human form, he had nothing, quite literally. He was born to an extremely poor family. Think about the reality that he needed to be nursed. He needed to be burped. He needed to be changed. He had no land, he had no house, he had no real money, he had no real possession, he had no wealth. He was utterly dependent. What did it mean to empty himself? To take on humanity. The Son of God, the eternal Son, needed to be nursed and burped and washed and fed and clothed. He was dependent. It's amazing to think about. And that was his mindset. That was his will. That was his desire. That was his choice. But being human was essential for our salvation. Humanity sinned against God, and humanity needs to be able to make satisfaction to God. And there is no more perfect mediator than Jesus, who is both. He is truly God and truly man. So in his mindset, what is he thinking? Is he's emptying himself? by adding to himself humanity and suffering unspeakable shame and anguish and difficulty in that for us. And again, at any time, most of us would pull the deity card and say, I am out of here. But Jesus stayed to the very end, and he was obedient even to death on a cross, which is the third point. The third thing we learn is it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we heard about him emptying himself, right? This is his mindset. This is his will. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what the cross looks like from the eyes of the eternal son, from the perspective of the one who comes. He emptied himself by becoming the form of a servant, but he also humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, we are not redeemed by the incarnation of Jesus, just by him becoming human. We're redeemed by him becoming human and fulfilling all righteousness in our stead, by being perfectly obedient. Where Adam reached out and grasped and disobeyed the Lord, never once from womb to tomb did Jesus do that. He always obeyed. It was his desire, it was his delight to do the Father's will. And it says that he was obedient even to death on a cross. 
That's significant because it wasn't just any death, but death on a cross. And Claire Ferguson notes that that is a particular kind of death. It's a cursed death. It's a condemned death. It was not even able to be done for Roman citizens. In our land, there are still some states that have capital punishment, and they always are seeking to do it in what they, uh, what, what they think of as humanely as possible, as quickly as possible, without any due suffering. A crucifixion was not that at all. A crucifixion was meant to inflict suffering and shame. You were hanging there naked and exposed and humiliated, sometimes for hours, sometimes for days, bleeding, laughed at, mocked, scorned. To think about the reality that Jesus came from glory down to the depths of the worst human cruelty that you could inflict on someone in terms of capital punishment. That that was his mindset. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because that death, that cursed death is for us. From womb to tomb, Jesus obeyed in everything. For us, earning and meriting our salvation and also giving that, ultimately uh, declaring us righteous. (laughs) as if his obedience was our own. It's remarkable to think about. So here we really get a glimpse of the mindset of Jesus, the mindset of the Son as he looked at the cross. And now we want to look at the mindset of the Father. We looked at the mindset of the Son. Let's turn to our second point, the mindset of the Father. Verses 9 through 11 record the action of God by way of response on his part to the life and death of Jesus Christ, Sinclair Ferguson noted. If you think about the fact that Jesus is the beloved son of the Father and the Father sees all of these things going on, and you kind of wonder, you've got to think, what is the Father going to do about this? What is the Father going to do about this cruel and unusual punishment? What is the Father going to do about the treatment that his son received from the humans that he sent him to, from the human that he became? And it seems like these verses are the answer to that. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what the cross looked like. This is what the humiliation looks like an exaltation from the eyes or the mindset of the Father. That's not going to get the last word. He's going to do something. He's going to exalt him. He's going to bestow a name on him. And at that name, every knee is going to bow. Just like there were three steps in the humiliation, there are three aspects described here for us in the exaltation as well. He will be highly exalted. He will be given a name above every name. And at that name, every knee will bow. So what does it look like from the eyes of the Father? The first thing is the the exaltation is obviously chronological to the suffering. It was after he suffered, after he died, after he was buried that he was exalted. But it's also consequential. It's because of that. It's because he was obedient and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he was exalted. In other words, he had merited it, he had earned it, he had deserved the reward, he deserved these kind of things, and it was the joy and the delight of the Father to do so. This was the plan of the Father and the Son from all of eternity. Along with the Holy Spirit, they had planned and set out what they were going to do to seek and to save the lost. 
And Jesus recognized this. Jesus recognized it as a reward or the right for what he had accomplished. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's the mindset of the Father. That's the mindset of the Son. Jesus is saying, I was with you in glory before. I came down and I glorified you by doing everything. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. And it's the Father's delight to do so. It's the Father's delight to honor his Son with that and to be able to hold him forth before all the world and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. There is salvation in no one else. And so it's, the exaltation is not only chronologically but consequential because Jesus earned and merited and is rewarded for accomplishing our salvation. And the second thing that we see from the eyes of the Father is that a name is given, a new name. For a name to be given to Jesus indicates that there's a new dignity, there's a new status, a new function that's been given to him because now the mission has been accomplished. On the cross, Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished. After he had cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had to be abandoned, he had to be forsaken, he had to be condemned The father still loved him during that, but he was abandoned. But the last prayer on the cross is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. It is done. Mission accomplished. And now, Father, glorify me. I have accomplished the work that you've sent me to do. A universal supremacy is accorded to Jesus because of what he's done. A new name is given. And that name is Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is the Lord. 6,000 times in the Old Testament, the word Yahweh appears. And now it's recognizing that Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the exact imprint of the Father. He and the Father are one. He is God. And so to be able to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lord, Jesus Christ is Yahweh, is the name that's given to him. Hebrews 1 puts it this way. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus, Savior, Lord, Yahweh, he is God. He is given a name. He's accomplished our salvation. He is the Lord of salvation. He is the one to whom we call on. He is the one who is interceding for us. 
He deserves that title. He deserves that name. And the Father is pleased to give it to him. And the third thing we notice, the mindset of the Father is that the Son will be rightly revered and honored and worshipped and adored and obeyed and loved because he is worthy. He is lovely. He is holy. He is righteous. And the Father is well pleased in him. And he's saying that every knee is going to bow before Jesus. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, everywhere. It's cosmic. It's universal. Every knee. Angels, demons, humans, dead or alive, every knee will bow. And this is the mindset of the Father, even from before creation itself, when he planned our redemption. (laughs) was that this is how much he loved the son. This is the honor that is worthy of his son. And like any proud father, any proud papa, any proud daddy wants to put him before him and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And in essence, he is going to demand that the respect and the honor and the worship and the adoration and the love and obedience that is due the second person of the Holy Trinity is given to him. What does it look like for the father? What is the mindset of the father? This is my son. And you'll either bow before him in humble faith, receiving all the gifts of salvation, or you will bow in subjection, but you will bow. This is my son. Come. It's a life and death issue, isn't it? To recognize Jesus. To recognize Jesus as Lord, the name that's given to him. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Lord, and to call on him. And then finally, we want to look at the mindset of the Christian. Verse 5 in our text is really a bridge between the mindset of the Christian and the mindset that we looked at of Christ, or the Son, and the mindset of the Father. And verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so it's kind of connected to what's before it and what's after it. It's a hinge, if you will, or a bridge between the two. And there are a couple different options that people, when they interpret this verse, think about it. Do they think about it, is it that you are to imitate the mindset of Jesus or that you have this mind because you're in union with Christ? In other words, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ, so imitate that mindset. Or have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, because it's a gift to you in union with him. I would say both. (laughs) Both are true. We are called to imitate Christ, but we can only do that because we are in union with Christ. Because we are part of the new creation. We are created in Christ. The union with Christ leads to the imitation of Christ. One of the greatest delights of the Father is to conform us more and more to the image of his Son, isn't it? To be able to think like Christ, to act like Christ, to love like Christ, to serve like Christ. We are being conformed more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And this is the Father's delight. This is his intention. This is his purpose and his will. And we recognize that the union really comes first, right? We have been baptized with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We have been seated with Christ. In the heavenly scripture tells us. 
So yes, we are to imitate Christ, but that comes about because we are united to Christ. We belong to him. We are not our own. In life and in death, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is fully satisfied for all of our sins. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to assure us of these things and to cause us to walk more and more like our Lord and Savior. By the power and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit, we are able to do these things. That's why the text says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit capital S, any participation in the Spirit, yes. You've been regenerated, you've been reborn, you've been justified, you've been sanctified, you are indwelt. These things are yours, so now have this mind, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. The gospel, the word, and the Spirit shape and transform us and sanctify us as Christians to be more and more like our beautiful Savior Jesus, the Lord. More and more like the adopted children become like the natural child. More and more those who are enemies and sinners become like the son because we are being conformed to him. Hear the love and hear the union and hear the fellowship and hear the humility and the heart of the transformation of the gospel. Again, so if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and the same love and being in full accord with one mind. And then there are three things here, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others as more important than yourselves. And don't look out only for your own needs, but also the interest of others. So just as there were three things in the mindset of Christ in the in the humiliation, and three things in the mindset of the Father in the exaltation. There are three things that we want to see here in the Christian mindset. First, that we're not selfish, but selfless. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And it explained to us how that looked from Christ, how that looked in his life, and even how it looked from his own eyes. He didn't do things for selfish ambition, but for us. And humbly, it says, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. That's a tough one, isn't it? All of us are less significant than Jesus. And yet the mind that is ours in Christ and what he is calling us to imitate is that he did humble himself. And he became human. He took on the form of humanity, a slave, a servant. He emptied himself. And he came to serve us. And so we too are to count others as more significant than ourselves. And sometimes that's easy to do for people that we do perceive as being more significant than ourselves. But like our Lord and Savior Jesus, those who we don't think of that way, for one way or another, to count those as more significant than ourselves. And then finally it says, don't look out only for your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So it's not saying we don't care about ourselves or our things at all, but not only, not merely us, but others. We're selfless, not selfish. We're humble, we're caring, we're thoughtful, we're others-oriented. Right? This passage is really a magnificent portrait of Christ as both the source and the model for what it means to be truly human, Sinclair Ferguson said. Jesus is the source and the foundation of that through our union with him, 
but he's also the model for it in terms of what he did. Sinclair goes on to say, the humility, the unity, and the service is not something that we have by nature. It is a divine gift, right? If I asked you, how easy is it to think of others more highly than yourself? It's tough. If I asked you how you're doing at that on a daily basis, it's tough. Where does that come from? It's a divine gift, a new heart, a new spirit I put within you. As he sanctifies us and conforms us more and more to the image of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson, in closing on this passage, he said, The Christian life this week isn't going to be rocket science but it's for you to consider everyone you meet this week is more important than yourself. That moment-by-moment commitment to Jesus that says, by God's grace, as a share in the life, the death, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and by the indwelling Holy Spirit, Father, please allow me to consider this person as more important than me. Imagine what our church would be like if we did that. Imagine what our churches would be like if we did that. Imagine what our life would be like if we did it. We'd look more and more like our Savior, wouldn't we? We would love more and more like him. We would care more and more like him. We would be selfless more and more like him. We'd be self-sacrificing and self-giving and generous. We'd be far more humble, wouldn't we? And that's our prayer as a Christian. We're asking for that. We're asking moment by moment, By God's grace, as a share in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, Father, please allow me to consider this person as more important than me. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 really kind of summarizes what we're talking about here in terms of this mind of Christ as uh, both the union and the imitation Ephesians 2 gives us the worst news imaginable. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's a more bleak picture. But the next words are, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's radical to think about. We're under condemnation. We're dead in our trespasses. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us while we were dead, not after we cleaned up our act, not after we started imitating Jesus, while we were dead and enemies and hostile. He made us alive together and seated us with Christ. 
Where the Father has exalted the Son is where you are in some sense. You are united to him and seated with him. Now and always. He will come back with us and take us, to, to come back for us and to take us where he is. And it says we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them as he conforms us more and more to the image of our Savior so that we're humble, so that we're selfless, so that we're giving, so that we think of others in the same way that Christ thought of others as higher than themselves. And we come to serve more so than to be served. Let me close with this prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians for the church at Ephesus, but also for all churches. And it mentions these things. It carries this idea with us. Let's end with this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen.